The scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah 55, 1 through 9. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, worship team. All right. Well, let's let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have before your word right now. We pray that you would uh, take these moments and transform this time, make the words that I say that are weak in themselves and unable to change anybody, uh, empower them, uh, bring a greater, more authoritative voice into this room, uh, your voice. And uh, may, when we hear your voice, may we respond. May it come with all its beauty and wonder and grace. And uh, we do pray that you will um, bring change in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are starting a new series called You Can Change. And this is the second Sunday of this series. And I hope you do believe that you can change. Um, We are going to start the book of Jonah as we enter into the season of Lent, which takes us about uh, six, seven uh, Sundays, and then we head into Good Friday and Easter, and we're often running with a a great great themes of the book of Jonah. But in the time that we have, uh, we're looking at the idea of change, and um, really, it's such a big subject, it's such a huge idea to talk about change and transformation um, it's sort of like going in front of the, uh, the Empire State Building with a little Dixie cup of paint with a little tiny brush and, okay, I'm going to paint the whole thing. Um, and you end up painting about three square inches maybe or something. Um, I have um, the delight this morning to speak on the subject of, of, of why we change or 
why change and how we change. So that's, that's kind of a big, big order for one particular sermon. But let me share with you that um, topical studies are, are actually good for the church. And uh, this book actually is entitled You Can Change by Tim Chester was so impressive to me. I, we've got some available for you in the foyer. But you'll see here uh, in this book some themes and some ideas that I'm touching on, and I want to give him credit whenever possible when I'm, if I'm quoting something from him. But it's very, very good to talk about, directly talk about, as a church, what does it look like to change? And last week we looked at the idea of transformational gazing, which is a fancy way of saying worship, and that the problem in my life is most of the time a worship problem, and that is if the delights of my heart are caught up in worship, then I'll be able to get other things in perspective. Um, so here's, here's what's going on in this text, is that God is looking at a people, and they are choosing um, things that are not working in their life. Um, they are making choices that aren't, aren't coming through for them. They are they're experiencing the result of, of decisions that just are not working. They're not uh, finding deep satisfaction in their choices. And so God is promising that if anyone thirsts, look at verse 1, if anyone thirsts, uh, there is real change possible for them. He, the one who's calling, is saying, Come, come, thirsty ones, come to the waters, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is talking about feasting. He's talking to people who are making choices, and the metaphor is food, and we have an unspoken agreement. Did you know that? Um, I like using food illustrations in sermons, and so uh, the unspoken agreement is I'll cut those down because they get a little bit tedious. So I get to use three a year. I don't know if you know that, but so I'm January. I'm jumping on it right now. And um, I used to be into golf years ago. And then I know a lot of you were like, okay, we get it. Okay. But so now uh, we're into food. Okay. And that everyone is like, well, that's good stuff. Well, God is into food and he uses food as a picture of need. And he uses wine and saying, you know, you don't, you, I want to give you something you can't buy. I'm going to give you wine, and it refers to milk as well. But uh, I'm going to say, this is talking about feasting. And the feast that God offers is free. That's interesting, isn't it? He says, I want you to come to this feast, and there's no, no way you can buy this. Uh, in fact, God, in verse 2, then asks a rhetorical question that's to get right to the heart. Why, and this is a painful question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? In other words, you have legitimate needs, and you, have, you should seek to meet those needs and your family's needs. Those are good. But why do you go on and trying with purchases and possessions to, to, to make something, uh, make these things do things that they can't really do? Um, so God is asking, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Bread will come through for you. You need bread. You need daily bread, right? You need food. Food will do its work, but you purchase things and you think they will come through for you in a deep, satisfying way, and they will not. Uh, there's a Super Bowl player who's reflecting on finally getting to the Super Bowl, and uh, you know the 
takes about, I don't know, five hours for the Super Bowl to finally get started. You guys ever watch that? It keeps going. There's fireworks and there's all these, all these different programs. And so this guy's on the sidelines. He's one of the players. And he's watching all this hoopla and the fireworks and all this craziness. And he, he had always thought that this would be a transformational experience. You know, he just, he, you know, just about killed himself to get to this point in his life. And inwardly and quietly, he said to himself, is this all there is? That's the kind of question God wants us to ask. And we as a church, uh, we teach uh, that God is wanting to create circumstances in our lives where we actually ask those kinds of questions about our pursuits. It's called heat. We put, this is a picture that comes from Jeremiah 17, that God places heat, trials, difficulties, hardships upon us and what that does is that it creates sort of a question that arises, is this meaningful? Is this deeply satisfying? And the heat not only can come from our circumstances, but it can actually come from your expectations, the things you want out of life, the longings, the demands, the, the things that you clench your fist about. That's kind of an internal heat. I have internal heat, the things that I want out of life, things that I want for my church, things that I want out of life, this internal, internal heat that keeps working. And um, God is now reasoning with people and saying, look, come to me and you can experience real deep change. Why do we pursue the things that we want? Or why do we chase after the things that we're chasing after? Why do we spend our money on the things that we spend our money on? Well, a very simple shorthand is we want to be happy. And strangely, though, all this effort and all this work, we know, uh, and especially if you have a little more, uh, more miles by way of the age and you have a few, few more decades on you than a younger generation, you sort of know. You sort of know that that brand new car is fun and is exciting, but you know it's really not going to do what you, think, what you used to think it would do. And uh, we begin to be suspicious of the things that we, we desire. And uh, that's, that's a good thing. We begin to be suspicious. Will they, will they come through? Uh, was it Clint Jackson, the uh, country music singer back in 96 or 97, who said in one of his songs, all that I love is killing me. <laughs> and he came to this realization that he was just being owned so much by the pursuits of his heart. There's a book on it for educators, and it's, it's called Norms and Nobility. And this is such an insightful quote. It, please bear with me. His, the author's name is David Hicks, and he writes this, and it's really a modern-day retranslation of Isaiah 55. Listen to this. The life of pleasure eventually evades and exasperates the pleasure seeker because it is not a life sufficient unto itself. Pleasure demands a never-ending list of luxurious accessories, the acquisition of which wears man down with work and worry. Those are two things that come right from Isaiah. Work and worry. In the end, the pleasure seeker becomes preoccupied with what he lacks to complete his picture of happiness Gratification never catches up with his desire. Oh, that is a zinger. And consumption consumes the consumer. I call it in search of the magic it, right? 
Uh, you've got a nice house, you've got a nice place where you're staying, and you still long for something else. It's the person who has everything, but they're thinking, you know, a beach house or a, an extra vacation, always, there's always some magic it that's down the road. Jesus compassionately says to us and to all uh, who are weary, he says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Take my yoke upon you, and I'll give you rest. Some of us may say, you know what, uh, Pastor, sounds good. These warnings about work and worry, that eh, sounds good. I recognize that can, that can happen to some people. But some of us are choosing to keep pedaling, and we keep pedaling even faster Uh, These are sort of warnings that come from the Bible. You're not going to find it. It's not out there. There's no magic it. And we hear this, even in church, we hear it over and over. But we're sure that somehow we are going to be the one who evades. And we're going to find deep satisfaction. Uh, You know, it it just these things offer temporary relief and no deep, real relief and no deep change. It's interesting that Jesus encountered people who um, he wanted to hear them say one more thing. Uh, there were some men on the, on the side of the road one day in Matthew 20, and they were blind. Two men, and they cried out, and they had heard the Messiah was nearby, and they cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. They're blind. What does Jesus say? He says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, we would like to see. Isn't that interesting? He wanted them to tap into their deep need. And he wanted them to say their deep need out loud. Isn't that interesting? Don't they know what they need? Well, uh, not everyone who cried out to Jesus for some, some relief really understood the deep need that they were asking or, or, or asking for. So um, Isaiah 55 is offering the listener uh, a rich food, a, a feast, and to get there, there has to be some deep honesty. And so um, as you think about the why, why should I change, I'm going to suggest that there has to be some deep dissatisfaction in your life for you to ever care about change, um, some traction. If you're just sort of cruising along life and everything just seems to be hunky-dory, you got some struggles, you got a few things that aren't quite right, but you're just kind of cruising along and God is somewhat distant, God doesn't seem to be any kind of an answer to, to your struggle, then, then what's going to happen is you're simply going to cruise along and uh, you're not going to have any real need to change. But your need is actually hidden from you. You can't see it, but you are desperate. Everyone has the same level of desperation for God to intervene. So the kind of people God is talking to in Isaiah 55, and he says, if you thirst, these are people who have been drinking seawater. Okay? And they're desperate. They're experientially parched. People you work with may look outwardly together. The associate at work, the, grocer at, uh, the checker at the grocery store, a family member, But they are asking these kinds of questions. Why isn't my life working? Something is missing. I'm trying hard. I'm striving hard. I'm missing it. Everyone you know is at some level, and this can be Christians as well, we, 
we are asking questions related to satisfaction. We're striving for something, but we're not getting it. In fact, the things we're striving for are functioning in a deceptive way. Why do you buy, why do you purchase that which is not bread? Well, I think it's going to work. It is deceiving my heart. I mistakenly think it will work. So motivations, Christians, listen in, motivations for change for us have to do with this free wine and this feasting without cost. This is God's motivational structure, free feasting. Now, for some of us, that's, well, that sounds pretty good. But, you know, I was able, through my moral keeping of, of laws and my religious adherence to standards of my religion, uh, I was able to, to kind of make life work for me. In other words, if you are a religious person and you hear something is free, what it does is it sort of knocks, it knocks your, your motivational, your reason for being, kind of, it, it sort of destroys it. Real change that God's offering is going to be based on sheer grace alone. So you may be uh, wanting to change things in your life, but you're really doing it to get a better job. You may be wanting to change things in your character in order to just not receive criticism from people. You may be wanting to change, but you're really doing it to obey people. But when God speaks about change, he's saying it's going to flow through free feasting. This is throughout the Bible. There's so many beautiful texts. 2 Peter 1, 3. Here's a way of feasting on glory. Listen to this. This is Peter, 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We've been called out of darkness to feast on God's glory. And he, by which he has granted to us, how do we access this glory? By which he has granted to us to become partakers of the divine nature. Fancy words that simply say this. Jesus Christ became a human being. The divine and human were wedded together, mystery of mysteries. Jesus Christ is the eternal God-man. And through faith in him, we are united to him. And he is now sharing with us his his nature, as it were. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. And Peter's saying, I want to say this very, very carefully, in a sense, we are participating in a kind of deification. Be careful here. We are tapping into the divine nature, and what is actually going to be manifesting itself in our, in our lives is divine power. Divine power for change in our attitude, our character, uh, the, the way we live. So the root of true change, the why of change, is rooted in the feasting that God provides for us and the, the feasting that God does shows us how to feast through things like glory, uh, feasting on something like being adopted. Uh, God, through, through faith, we're justified, and then we're brought into a relationship with God through adoption, and then we have now this extraordinary opportunity to be and to live as a child of God with no credit on our own. We didn't make this happen. And we can feast on being adopted through God's spirit. What are we doing? We are feasting on wonderful theological truths 
about us and what God's mercy has done. This is sort of the why, this is really the why for our change. What happens is, as we feast on these kinds of things, we're actually no longer asking the question why, but we're asking the question, how can I not? In light of how beautiful this is, how can I not change? I am feasting on God's free grace, which is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question 35. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. And this is what God does. He works with us, gives us, gives us the promises, gives us the grace to understand them, and it is a work of God's free grace where we are now being conformed to his Son. What does he work on? What does he do to, to get this process going? He saves us, and then he gives us a thirst for him. We are feasting on God and God's mercy thankful for his mercy. Author Sam Storms writes, writes this. He says, I define the glory of God as the beauty of God unveiled. Glory is the resplendent radiance of his power and his personality. Glory is all of God that makes God God and shows him to be worthy of our praise and our boasting and our trust and our hope and our confidence and our joy. These are the qualities God reveals to us at no cost. This is the feast that God gives us, the feast of himself, the feast of joy in who he is. So change, change is coming at the level of our affections and loves. This is what God is doing. And uh, it's going to take, take over the whole of us, every aspect of us, all our personality, all our, our being, all our, our, our body, we are going to enter into the full change, and that is underway even right now. So, so much could be spoken about, but essentially this. The why of change for Christians, the why, comes from the deep riches of God's grace provided for us in his Son. Ultimately, we are now looking at what his son has done for us, how we are united to him, and we are basking in the promises that he has given toward us. And somewhere in there is the, the, the mechanism and the power to change because we are seeing something glorious and beautiful and wonderful. And I want to just encourage you, we do not feast by ourselves. We don't go off and sit under a tree and just have a feast in our own little private way, though that might be helpful. You are to feast on these truths uh, as a body, as God's people, in fellowship groups, in small groups. The women gather, the men gather. We, are, we realize that we can find other sources of sustenance and food, and, and, and our hearts can drift. Hebrews 3 tells us to exhort one another daily, you see. And so you have a role to play as you are basking in these, these glorious truths as, as you desire to change. Others around you need to hear the overflow of your heart. They need to hear words from you, promises of God through you. So exhort one another. Recognize that we don't do this by ourselves. And, uh, and this, this whole process is very exciting when we're all in it together. So change or transformation in the Christian life the why really flows from this deep work of God toward us 
and basking in these great promises of God toward us. Now, just a few ideas on the how. You've already sung about the how, by the way. We've already sung about the how. Joseph Hart, uh, we just sang uh, his hymn. A little bit, a little bit different on the hymn, uh, the words, not a lot though. Joseph Hart was a hymn writer in 1759, and he wrote this hymn, "Come, ye sinners, poor and needy," and you have it there for you in the worship folder. Um, come, come, you thirsty, he says. This is the hymn. Come, you thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. In other words, this is how you draw close to God, through belief and repentance. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. In other words, the the hymn writer is saying, don't sit back and wait until you have your act together. All that God has done has taken place. Don't let your conscience make you stall out. Don't linger. Come. Draw from his strength. Admit your weakness, and that qualifies you. The how of change is anchored right here. How do I change? I admit my weaknesses. I acknowledge that he is the He's the one who changes. I admit my weaknesses. So it's very interesting that Jesus actually encountered 10 lepers, and uh, he healed them, and only two returned to say thanks. Do you remember the story? You're out there? Hello? Only two returned to give thanks. It's interesting, isn't it? Some came to Jesus with, a, with an interest in just having a momentary, him deal with their disease, but they were not drawn to him. But two returned, and they said, thank you. And Jesus made a comment about their giving thanks. They were not so much interested in his ability to heal as interested in him. The desperate, the desperate who are those who are recovering from drinking seawater, the desperate realize they have now tasted of true water, they have had their needs met in the deep, deep way. The desperate become the knock, the door down, curious. They've discovered something of the person of God, and they cannot unsee it. They see something of God, and they cannot be what they once were. They've discovered something beautiful of the person of God, and his beauty is now helping them change. You've healed my disease, but I want to know you. The how of change takes place when we acknowledge our weakness, but also his beauty. True health is not getting a healing out of Jesus and going your way. It is saying, I need you for more than one touch. I need you continually. I want to be near you. I want to experience you over and over and over. Would it be beautiful for a church culture that is shaped in such a way that it's easy and natural and normal for us to acknowledge our weaknesses and express in the words of this hymn, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, 
and we're not going to wait around until we're better because we will not come at all. So, what is the work of change? Uh, lots, of, lots of books, lots of books, ideas out there about change and things you're supposed to do and techniques and things to apply and principles to remember. It's interesting. The work that we're to do is to acknowledge that God has sent his son. His son is the incarnate but risen and ascended king. We're to think great thoughts of him. We're to think wonderful thoughts about his blood that, that, uh, that still is uh, efficacious toward us. In other words, God doesn't give us techniques for change. He gives us his son. God doesn't sort of modify our behavior and say, hey, uh, you know, stop that and start this. He says, here is my son. He doesn't call us to be more surrendered, more dedicated, more committed. He calls us to be united in our humanity to Jesus Christ as our high priest and to acknowledge this complete atonement. And we are actually children of God. And from this now we live. So uh, he has for you an all-encompassing love. And the cry of Joseph Hart and his hymn concludes like this. Venture on him, venture wholly, let no other trust intrude. That hymn embodies the entire living out of the gospel. Our struggle to change is a, tr- is, a, is a struggle of trust. Let no other trust intrude. This is the how of a changed heart. If you are trusting in this risen Lord who, who has made you right before the living God, you now can face with boldness the criticism of people. Your need for the approval of people diminishes. You can, you can now live in courage, in gospel strength, because you are now rooting your identity in the Jesus Christ who loved you and gave his life for you. And in the words of Paul, second, uh, excuse me, Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. True change in the Christian heart almost always looks like boldness and freedom. Almost always. This is why we are in the tradition of the reformers who were bold and put their lives on the line. They understood that the church was called to a life of faith and repentance. And so it is a battle of trusts. And so this hymn concludes, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my Savior, there are 10,000 charms. It's cool. Let me conclude with one picture from the world of the food world. I'm sure many of you have had the waiter come to your table. And there's the menu, but there's the specials. And the specials are usually memorized by the waiter. And they tell you about how this shrimp has been sautéed in this wine sauce. And and they present to you all the details of, of, of this seafood dish or the New York steak or 
or if you're a college student, the, the ramen. <laughs> and and uh, it's interesting that you, you sort of put the menu down and you, and you listen to someone describe food. And if, you, and if you're serious about having a good dinner, you might have missed, that might really be worthwhile. And so you listen, and then as you listen, you imagine the delight level. On a scale of one to ten, that's a two. I'm not ordering that shrimp. They're throwing it out tomorrow. That's why it's on the special. But if you listen, what you're listening for is you're going to connect with your delights. Right? That's what's going on. That's how God does his work in us. And that's exactly what God tells the people here in Isaiah 55, 3. He says, listen well. Be diligent in your listening. So one practical thing you can do is, is you can come to God. And this is, this, is the, this is the best news I can give you. Ready? Here it is. You can come to God with a, cold, with a cold heart, with a dead battery in your system. And you can come before him and say, Lord, I am, I am just dead today. I have no affection for you. So, so tell me about the food. Tell me about the food. Jumpstart my heart. Help me to delight once again, once again, once again. Your heart will be in the same degree of need this morning as it will be tomorrow. And, and what the task of the Christian life is, is to restart the heart through hearing what God has done. And may God give us all the gift of hearing well. And something wonderful will happen. You'll change. Isn't that great? Let's pray. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Oh, Father, may you create in us a thirst for you that is, cannot be quenched. I ask, Lord, you would work with me, work with all of us, jumpstart our hearts, do a work of deep change. Help us be one of those lepers who came back and said, thank you, but who are you? Create in us a divine curiosity for the Son of God. Help us be like angels in heaven right now who are amazed at him, who are adoring him. Thank you for the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.